Hello everyone, it's April 6th, 2021. So the ISS had a little scare from a dragon, but nothing too serious. Also in the news though, there's that SN11 failure. That was a little more serious. Starships aren't quite as well trained as dragons just yet, but they'll get there. And let's get to it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 303 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. All right, so we're back. That's a just a quick little break, but we're all uh, reassembled and ready to go. We, we, can, we can do one host Sometimes out. the weather looks too. good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the weather looks good right up until your lunch window, and then, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. So did you all see the, uh, the photos of Ingenuity on the surface on its lonesome? I have mm. seen them. I saw... I saw that photo. I saw the ones just before it was actually dropped because first they had a little, mm-hmm. like a, a little protective case or cover that they had yep. to drop down first. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of been following the progress. Um, but I'm mm-hmm. very anxious to see it actually fly because that's going to be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could be, uh, you know, in the next week or two, I think. You know, that, that was a fun progression though. Like, y- y- yeah, the, the, the protective cover came off and then you just saw it dangling less. Unless, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, as they were like, oh, we're going to mm-hmm. remove or, you know, uh, this connection and we're going to stick these legs out now. And it was slowly unfolding and coming down. And now it's just sitting there. It, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of like when uh, my small cat is like on the bed, like all by herself. And she looks extra small when she's got like this big wide space around her. That's how the helicopter looks to me because it's just this t- tiny thing mm-hmm. just sitting in a huge flat area. It's so weird. Like, I'm, I'm so unused to seeing human artifacts in third person on mars and like it looks photoshopped like that's just how my brain has decided to interpret these photos i think it looks real to me it just looks like amazing that i mean it, well what's unreal is seeing that it's a helicopter you know like that's what's incredible and i think we were talking about how exactly it's powered i mean i know that it has it has a battery which has to keep it warm um because up until the point that it was dropped it had actually been staying warm by essentially remaining attached to the rover's belly <laughs> um uh-huh. but now it has to provide its own warmth um and i don't remember does this have solar power is, is this like yes. are there any little panels on the on the box okay on, not on the box there they look like they look like a third pair of of blades they sit on top of the the okay, stack of okay. rotors. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a somewhat delicate or tricky situation where once um, the helicopter was on the ground, you know, its solar panel is is blocked by the rover sitting on top mm-hmm. of it. So making sure that they move the rover away, you know, from it, so that it was uh, the solar panel on the helicopter was exposed to sunlight was like important because they had a, a limited amount of time that you know it could survive in the in the in the shadow of the the belly of the rover (laughs) yeah it's funny how that area goes from being helpful and welcoming to way too cold (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. if you're next to the rover you're fine (laughs) but if you're under the rover you're in trouble it needs to maintain a temperature of five degrees fahrenheit or minus 15 celsius i don't know what happens if it drops below that are there certain components that just uh like will not come back online well i mean I, i i don't think it's a I don't think it's a certainty, but yeah, you start having components that are getting into temperatures where they're going to get damaged eventually. Well, so far, things look good, so hopefully we'll be seeing it fly in, like you said, a couple yeah. weeks, maybe. Right. And then we've got 30, or, or I guess, is the 30 days of ingenuity, is that started like already, or is that after its first flight? Right, because it's it's basically I, taking up time from the, the primary mission, and so that's why they're limited to 30 days, not by the the expected lifetime of the rover. And so that's why it's going to yeah. be a hard stop after that. I mean, you'd think it would be from deployment, but yeah, I don't know, they, they might've given them a grace period to make sure that the rover didn't impinge on those 30 days. 
Something that maybe people don't know much about, because I don't really know much about this, but Ben, you did the research here. So there was a failed bus, um, a failed data bus on a Crew Dragon. So mm-hmm. um, a data bus. So, so this is getting into like, you know, computer territory. So I think this is maybe more something that you would know about. <laughs> so have at it because it's, I mean, it sounds kind of, I don't know. It sounds a little bit worrisome. Um, is that a word? Yeah, worrisome is a word. And uh, I can... I can tell you this is not something to worry about. So Okay, cool. Um so basically uh Wednesday the 24th of of last month um astronauts were woken up early in the morning because there were alarms going off. Yeah, see that would totally worry me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I'm assuming that uh mission control and the astronauts were a little worried too. Um, but it turns out to be a, a pretty easy fix. The issue uh was tracked down pretty quickly uh to Crew Dragon, believe it or not. ISS has um, data lines that talk to Dragon, and uh, ISS uh, started getting bad data from Dragon and woke everybody up. Um, and it turns out that there wasn't any bad data. Or the, the bad data wasn't reflecting a bad situation. It was just reflecting a communications error. So Dragon uses um, a communication standard called 1553. It is a, a pretty wide standard um, that allows you to do both serial and parallel communications, and it defines a lot of different aspects uh, of this communications protocol. But uh, in this case, uh, Dragon uses um, a product from AltaDT uh, called MIL STD 1553, so Military Standard 1553. Um, and this uh, particular product is um, serial data bus. And this particular data bus, um, or its siblings are used on uh, a lot of different products. And the military standard might tip you off to the fact that it's used by military aviation. So pretty, pretty common in the world, but also, uh, it's you, um, the serial 1553 protocol is used. Uh, pretty extensively um, on spacecraft. It's mainly used for like onboard data handling. So like your your internal internet, making sure that everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And so, you know, even though it's a fairly wide protocol, one thing that uh, every implementation, as far as I know, every implementation of 1553 um, includes redundant hardware, which should not surprise anybody. Um, and so uh, what happened was the the 1553 bus on Dragon experienced a uh, a single upset event uh, where it got smacked in the face with um, a radiation particle, probably from the sun, but you know maybe from a distant galaxy, and uh, it turned a bit on or turned a bit off, and just one bit was flipped and it uh, ruined everything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so uh, Dragon suddenly started telling ISS that it had a power failure or some sort of power issue. I don't know if it was specifically a, a total power failure, but the solution is really easy. Since you have redundant hardware, all they had to do was switch to the backup string, reboot the main string, and then swap back to the main string. And that's it. So so this is like a, a very mundane kind of uh, space thing. But I, I it, it really appeals to me for some reason. I think it's the combination of both utter panic and also like a quick fix. You know, it's like, this is the way the system's supposed to work. 
And granted, SpaceX and NASA launched um, a joint team or I guess tasked a joint team um, to investigate ways to mitigate this exact issue. Obviously, they can't prevent single upsets from happening unless you decide to shield every single bit of electronics with about two feet of water or you know something like that. But they're looking at ways to detect this issue um, and uh, maybe even do automated uh, restarts. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Uh, you have radiation uh, screwing up electronics. ISS thinks Dragon is dying. And all you got to do is just uh, try turning it off and on again. <laughs> so sometimes that actually does work. Oh, yeah. I think most times that actually works. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why the joke is funny. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I guess in more well-known news, then we can move on to Starship number 11 or serial number 11. So this is at this point, as we're recording, this was a couple weeks ago, um, I think. When did this launch? This was still in late March, right? Five days ago. Five days? Yeah. Well, I thought we could have covered it last week. That's what I was... Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, but... Yeah, early Tuesday morning. All right. So luckily, since we you know took one week off, we can... At least now talk about Starship number 11 and the very dramatic conflagration there. Um, that was, mm. although there wasn't much to see on, until there kind of was because this whole test happened in some pretty dense fog because I remember watching and thinking to myself, like, what am I even looking at? Like, like it was the kind of fog that you hear about when you can't see the hand in front of you. It was just bad. But they proceeded with the launch and things went according to plan. But once again, just like with previous launches, it was during the engine relight that they had some kind of an issue. And it's been five days and we still don't really know exactly what the issue was. Uh, there's been no update since then. So I guess we can only speculate. So what we did see, right, and I don't know if you watched the video, but uh, you're looking at a whole bunch of fog and then suddenly just mm-hmm. shrapnel starts raining down from the sky. And that was, you know, the very dramatic part. Like I, I was just like, wow, this is like something out of a disaster movie. Just huge, big chunks of a spaceship are falling from the sky, mm-hmm. uh, just like in like a Michael Bay movie or something. It was pretty crazy. So basically, the only tweet we have from Elon about this so far, I think maybe there's a couple, but basically the only relevant one, uh, he says that Engine 2 had issues on ascent and didn't reach operating chamber pressure on the landing burn, but in theory, that wasn't needed. Um, and then he said that something significant happened shortly after landing burn start and that they should know what that was once they can examine the bits later on today and that was like five days ago so i assume that they have examined those bits as he put it um i don't know what conclusions have come to but one interesting thing i found and i'm not familiar with this particular person but someone on twitter came up with a pretty cool graphic they pretty much mapped out the debris because there were some flyovers of the facility and you can see all the debris scattered all about and uh what this guy came up with and this is somebody named bowen cameron who is an astrophysics student i don't know much about you know him but um, what we have here is this really cool graphic of the Starship components and then exactly where they landed on, you know, the Boca Chica facility there. And it, so from that, you can kind of d- determine the orientation of Starship when it exploded. And it looks like it pretty much just, you know, exploded in all directions. Like that's the best way that I can describe it because you have the front half of the Starship on one half of the terrain and then the bottom half on the other. So it was horizontal and then it just kind of blew up and went everywhere. And it's a pretty cool graphic too because it kind of gives you an idea if you're not familiar with exactly how, you know, the tanks work. Because I have to say, I kind of know, but I have never seen this. Um, You get a much better idea of how the methane tank sits above the LOX tank and then in between the methane tank and the LOX tank, there is uh, the methane header tank. Um, And at the very tip of the Starship is the LOX header tank. 
And another cool thing, um, I'm sure we've all seen the video of the inside of the the methane tank. You can see the liquid methane there, and you can even see the header tank just below the surface of the liquid, and you can see the downcomer from the LOX header tank, uh, which is pumping the liquid oxygen from the tip of the Starship. And mm. that was really neat to see. I've never seen the inside of a Starship uh, fuel tank, so that was a pretty cool thing. For uh, SN10, I believe we got to see the LOX chamber, but I, I don't think we saw the the methane chamber. I actually don't remember even seeing the LOX chamber. What was cool is that they had, you can clearly see the baffles, but I have to say I'm not ex- exactly sure how those work as baffles because, you know, just because of the angle, I think, um, I can't quite see what's going on there. So maybe you can explain to me. I don't know if either of you have any more information on how those liquid methane baffles work. It's a pretty work. standard design. They're basically just ribs that that encircle the tank and you've got a, a couple of different levels of them. So, you know, like an, an ideal uh, baffle would be basically a tank that's full of smaller tanks, uh, maybe mm-hmm. even like a tank that's full of vertical straws. And that way you, you really don't have any room for side to side sloshing. But obviously if, if you do that, you're going to have a tank that's mostly tank and not a lot of fuel. So, um, the less baffle weight you can put in there, the better. And so this is pretty much as minimal. Well, this is like one step up from the most minimal you can get. It's common to just see baffles down at the bottom. So you don't care about slosh until you're way down at the very end. And it's really easy to get gas ingestion. And so by putting these rings uh, around at different levels, you you kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, but I mean, the, the basic idea is you're not able to prevent slosh in the middle of the tank, but slosh by definition, uh, or, or, you know, the fluid level is going to interface with the sides unless you've got really bad slosh, in which case it doesn't matter. So just by putting these baffles on the sides, you can imagine the level, the liquid shifting back and forth, you know, like, like a rocking boat Mm -hmm. almost. And you can, you can imagine it hitting those baffles and getting calmed by their presence. Um, and in in addition, these are, are pointed down. So you don't get splash coming back into the center of the tank. Um, you kind of get that energy build up there at the side. And so the, the liquid has to spend a lot of energy moving air out of the way and it, it, it dissipates. It kind of acts as a, as a buffer. That's my understanding. They can also double as kind of structural support too, since after yeah. all their rings going around the outside yep. of the tank. So mm-hmm. good point. And so I think that the crucial difference is that because I have seen baffles, um, in other rocket tanks. And I think that the difference is that here they're trying to prevent slosh with uh, the Starship in, you know, a horizontal orientation, right? Because if it's vertical and, you know, like um, the Falcon 1 event that we were talking about a couple weeks ago, the problem there was with a different kind of slosh happening where you had, you know, a rotation along the vertical axis of the rocket. And that was causing a kind of cavitation, you know, because it was kind of like sloshing around. Mm -hmm. But this is more like to prevent it from moving towards the nose of the spacecraft as it's coming in horizontally. So I think maybe that's kind of an explanation that makes more sense to me. Yeah, that, I mean, it's that's a very extreme uh, thing for a rocket to experience. And so, you know, at that point, obviously, it's not we, we don't care about gas ingestion because that's what the header tanks are for. But, you know, if you're having to make this rotation and slow down the rotation, yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Um, especially once you have a, a small enough amount of liquid left in the tank that it's below the level of the baffles when it's uh, on its belly, um, then those baffles, yeah, 
prevent that liquid from moving until the vehicle is closer to upright and then they keep it from splashing up on the other side. Um, that's a required mechanic I didn't even think about. And that probably explains why these things look so bizarre and why they didn't go with the, the basic, uh, slosh baffles at the, at the bottom of the tank. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, something went wrong and that's all we can say. So I guess, well, you know, but I, I, I do have to say, I'm wondering if like, is anyone getting the sense that there is some kind of a somewhat large issue with the Raptor engines um, as far as these <laughs> relights go? Because that does seem to be the common thread here is that they're having relight problems and it, it's not a problem with the header tank this time, or at least I don't think so because, you know, they worked that out. The engines seem to be getting fuel. It's just that they're not relighting properly. Well, so, so, so if this, uh, if um Bowen's speculation is correct and it, the logic sounds fairly sound for for what we know if this was an engine failure um then it's likely to be um Raptor 52 um and, and that seems pretty well founded in in evidence because um we were able to hear two engines start up I believe or, or able to infer from uh, offsite audio from third party audio that the uh, mm-hmm. um, that two of the engines lit and the third one didn't um, and that third one if all the sequencing is the same as the uh, as the ascent which seems very reasonable this would have been Raptor 52 which on the way up was the one that was kind of sparking and uh, throwing off some flames. Um, so it, it sounds like if we're having Raptor issues, at least they're, uh, repeatable and predictable <laughs> to some extent, even if you're only uh, able to predict them once you've actually, uh, lifted off the pad. It, it'll be interesting. We, I don't think we will ever know this, but it'll be interesting for SpaceX engineers, um, when they're able to go back into the test data and see if 52 had issues previously. Yeah, and that's why, you know, everyone kind of, you know, rolling their eyes after the first, you know, couple failures. Uh, I mean, just going from horizontal to vertical in that last minute, last second burn, I mean, there's just so much going on. Like, it's really complicated. (laughs) So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about um, Bowen speculation, which, again, like, sounds totally reasonable to me. So one of the interesting things that people were kind of scratching their heads over is why is this debris field oriented the way it is? Um, you get upper vehicle components uh, on one half of Starbase and lower vehicle components on the other half. And um, first, s- sort of one of the answers to that that I-, I didn't know about is that Bowen says that they flipped the vehicle 180 degrees uh, on landing. So instead of coming in with um, the nose cone pointed away from the pad, they came with a nose cone pointed towards the pad. And apparently Trevor Malman um, got good photos that actually show that orientation. Um, and, and so by flipping it, I mean, when they went into their belly flop, they picked that orientation uh, as opposed to an actual movement that happened uh, later on in the flight. So they decided to come down in a different orientation. With that orientation, Suddenly having uh, the upper components closer to the pad and the lower components farther away from the pad starts to make sense, right? Um, and then one of the key separations that uh, it should really snag your interest, I think, is the, um, the methane header tank. Uh, split into two pieces and the two pieces, uh, were photographed, I don't know, like 
a hundred yards away from each other or a hundred meters away from each other, 200 meters away from each other. And like those things used to touch. (laughs) So um, I I think that one bit of evidence really starts to, to give us the suggestion that that header tank initiated the explosion. I don't know if, if we can uh, completely say that it initiated it, but I think that's kind of the suggestion uh, that, that we should be drawing from, from that placement. And then uh, one of the things that doesn't fit this this sort of uh, um, mapping uh, technique uh, are the engines uh, were were pretty close to the pad, um, and it seems reasonable that it's because they're heavy, <laughs> and they they um, you know they're not going to fall quicker, but it's going to take a lot more energy to to give them a kick. Um, they you know they were kind of close to the to the boundary line, but the uh, the puck and the Raptors were. Um, definitely on the the upper side of of the of the debris field so we have to ask what kind of rapid unplanned disassembly was this if it's a if it's a rupture in a tank it's not likely to scatter components like this right you get a tank rupture you get a hole that gets bigger and bigger and then the bigger it gets the more pressure escapes and the less force uh the the pressure difference between the inside and the outside of the tank has to actually rip the vehicle apart um and we're also pretty sure that this happened before landing right like it didn't smack down into the ground it actually exploded above the ground right. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so so the the normal way that you get uh, pieces shredded like this as you slam into the ground um, and then you shred apart um, and, and the explosion uh, is after the shredding has begun. Um, and so uh, Bowen's idea here um, is that the uh, the header tank uh, was was rapidly depressurized as the third engine of uh, Raptor 52 uh, failed, then, you know, Raptor, Raptor 52 shreds into small enough parts that we haven't found them with drones yet. Um, the other two are relatively unharmed and can drop straight down. The methane header, uh, tears itself into two pieces and flings everything apart. And then you get a nice mixture of methane and liquid oxygen. And that explosion, um, just shreds, you know, it's the crosscut part of the, sh- of the shredder. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that all seems pretty darn reasonable to me. And I, I really hope that, that we find out more about this sequence of events. But even if we don't, this, uh, this chain of, of detective work that, that everybody's kind of participating in, it's much less than the reconstruction efforts, uh, for the first Falcon 9 landing video. But like, this is really cool. We have people who, uh, are flying drones and taking photos. We have people who are identifying parts out of those photos. And then we have people, uh, putting them on maps and people analyzing the debris pattern. And it, it's really cool to see, you know, just, normal people it's kind of like uh citizen science you know yeah this is some pretty good forensic work here (laughs) yeah Yeah, and this this isn't easy i mean like i do crash reconstruction for a living it's not easy um and i can't imagine doing this like i've done crash reconstruction just from third-party photos it sucks um it's really cool to see people doing this all not only through third-party photos but third-party photos that were taken from a drone flying Offsite, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So yeah, that's that. But really quickly, I want I did kind of want to talk about the next launch, which is serial number fifteen. And mm-hmm. so we're skipping some numbers here. So fifteen is actually might already be on the pad. I'm not sure, but it was you know 
being put together and rolled out, I think as of yesterday. So it's probably already ready to go. So they're moving pretty quickly. And so the reason why it's number 15 and we don't have a 12, 13 or 14 is because they've made so many changes that they just wanted to, you know, skip those serial numbers and then I guess just call this one 15 because essentially 15 or this vehicle has everything that SN15 would have. So I guess, you know, just go ahead and call it 15 because that's what it is. <laughs> um, so they're not going to bother testing just the components that you would have on, you know, 12, 13, and 14. Um, that They're going to have all those changes plus, you know, whatever 15 has. So um, I guess that's the reason for skipping that particular designation or those designations of 12 through 14. But um, yeah, so he just said that there are hundreds of design improvements across structures, the avionics software, and the engines. So that's a lot of different changes. Um, and, you know, I, I'm guessing a whole bunch of little minor changes. Who knows? Yeah, he, he says many small improvements, but overall similar. Mm -hmm. Wiring is more robust. Engines are more mature. Nose cone is sealed better, etc. Um, Mike in the chat asks if they were actually building 12 through 14 at one point. Yeah, actually, components have been identified that actually do belong to 12 and 14, but it looks like they didn't manufacture all of them or they have them all ready to go and they just haven't stacked them and like done the final assembling. Okay. Uh, K chat in, in the chat says, uh, it was, they were scrapped during building. So yeah, so they, uh, they tore them apart. And then one last tweet, I, at least I think this was a tweet. This is definitely a quote from him. Uh, he said that serial numbers 20, uh, and onward will probably need many flight attempts to survive Mach 25 reentry. So, um, I guess I was, you know, he was just kind of calling that ahead of time saying, Hey, you know, this isn't easy and it's going to continue to not be easy because, uh, once they can make it to orbit, then if we're, you know, talking about reentry, they're going to need to be testing the thermal protection systems mm -hmm. and all that stuff um who knows i mean how that's going to play out because as we can see just just doing this landing isn't going as planned so mm -hmm. but that's something to look forward to but i think that 15 should be launching probably within a week or so you know there aren't very many teams uh that work in space that i'm that, that i would feel like i don't want to be on them but i'm really glad that i'm not working on starship this is so <laughs> difficult and harrowing, and they're just going at a breakneck speed. Like, oh yeah, I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I'm good. Everyone's watching. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I couldn't do it. I'm glad they're doing it. I couldn't do it. All right, let's do four short and sweets for this week. What is the first one, Ben? All right, first up, Rocket Lab is preparing for a moon mission. Uh, I mean. <laughs> We knew this. Um, not only did They Go Up So Fast feature the 100th satellite deployment for Rocket Lab, it also had the second photon, named Pathstone, on board. Pathstone will demonstrate power and thermal management, attitude control, and a deep space-capable radio. In the future, another photon, Capstone, will be the one headed to the moon to deploy NASA's NRHO demonstration CubeSat. Another exciting update is Rocket Lab's intention to test a new electron heat shield on an upcoming launch. Next up, everyday people in space. The first all-civilian crew has been selected for the Inspiration4 flight, a crew dragon flight to LEO financed by billionaire Jared Isaacman, who is also a veteran jet pilot and will be serving as commander of the flight. He will be joined by three other crew members, one of whom, Haley Arsenault, will be the youngest person to fly into space at 29 years old. The historic flight will also serve to raise awareness and funds for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. The mission will launch from Pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center. 
SpaceX plans to use a previously flown booster and Dragon capsule and is targeting no earlier than September 15th for launch. And then next up, NASA buys lunar gravity from Blue Origin. So upgrades to Blue Origin's New Shepard suborbital rocket will allow it to simulate lunar gravity for up to two minutes during flight. This ability is of interest to NASA as the only current means of doing so is on a parabolic flight around 20 seconds at a time. But New Shepard will be able to spin at a rate of 11 RPMs, effectively turning it into a centrifuge. NASA hopes to test technologies designed to operate on the lunar surface aboard the rotating New Shepard during the portions of its flight where it experiences zero G. So basically using a centrifuge, which mm. I actually misunderstood as meaning that they were going to descend at a slower rate. Yeah, me too. That's actually mm. what I thought that was, which seems like a better idea, but I guess you'd have to relight the engines for a much longer period of time, and that's not possible. But that would be really cool if they could do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't the only person who thought that. Okay. All right, and finally, uh, the HLS award should be here soon. Jody Singer, director at Marshall, said that HLS dance selects had not yet been made as of March 26th, uh, while the base period evaluation was extended by two months at the beginning of the year. NASA says that it expects to announce Option A funding awards by the end of April, or early May if evaluations take longer than expected. This award will fund the selected lander through spacecraft development, as well as initial flight demonstrations, originally scheduled for 2024. Who knows uh, what's going to happen there? The Option A critical design review is scheduled at the end of 2021, at which time Option B may also be awarded. So now we can move on to this week in spaceflight history. Finally, it's been two weeks, so I think we're all itching to find out what that clue is in reference to. So the winners are Peter McMally, Ben Howard, and the Greek, and the clue was a little deeper pool. Yeah. So what is a little a little deeper pool? Right. So uh, on this uh, unique uh, edition of last week in spaceflight history, um, <laughs> the event was um, <laughs> the fourth uh, oh, of man, April, nineteen eighty three. With that one. <laughs> oh my like goodness! <laughs> oh, sorry, let me shut back up. <laughs> and this uh, on the fourth of April, nineteen eighty three, was the launch of STS six. And so there was a lot of ways I could go with this one. You know, there was a lot of uh, firsts in this uh, mission, but I always like to start by just, you know, talking about the crew, right? STS-6, this is the sixth shuttle mission. mission. And so um, this was still when they had crews of four. And so it was, uh, or less, I guess the first, you know, ones had only crews of two. And so uh, this was Paul White's, uh, Carol Bo Bobko, uh, Story Musgrave, and Don Peterson. One thing I thought was really neat, and I kind of want to mention it now before we go into the uh, the actual uh, uh, mission and then the event and the clue, was that uh, the way the sort of shuttle crews work between uh, pilot and commander is that you basically flew as a pilot, and then uh, maybe you would do it once or, or twice, uh, but usually that would be enough, and then at that point you would go on to be the commander for your remaining uh, shuttle flights. And so, but if you ask yourself, you know, how do they, you know, how do you do that then when, you know, you haven't trained your pilots on the shuttle yet? You know what I mean? Who were the first commanders? And so these were Apollo astronauts. These were X-15 astronauts. And so Paul White's, right, was a, a space lab um, astronaut. And so I, I thought that was an interesting thing that they basically pulled the vets uh, to be the first kind of crop of commanders that trained the first pilots to become the first shuttle only commanders. You know what I mean? And so, uh, Carol Bobco, uh, Bo Bobco then, you know, went on to, you know, uh, be the commander for a couple more uh, shuttle missions. Uh, and so, but this was his first flight, as well as Story Musgraves and uh, Don Peterson's only flight, actually. Like I mentioned, there was there was a number of firsts that happened. And so this was Challenger's maiden flight, for example. Um, and so, right, this is the second uh, 
uh, orbital sh uh, second orbiter that you know was intended to go to space after uh, Columbia. Uh, there was another uh, uh, first was that this was the first uh, TDRS. Uh, tracking and data relay satellite that was deployed and so right this network of you know heavy duty uh you know uh, communication satellites for kind of you know uh, getting you from uh, the ground to orbit you know wherever you were was and so yeah the first tdris was deployed it was called tdris a and then once it was on orbit i believe uh, it was tdris one and so you know it's the original um and you know, so it's sitting in the sh uh, the cargo bay. There's a few uh, getaway special canisters, uh, the gas uh, containers, um, sitting back there too. But you know, kind of, you know, they 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 launch on April 4th. They get on orbit, uh, and the Tedris, right, is sitting in the back end of the bay, and it has to go and kind of get uh, pointed, you know, up and away from uh, the, the the shuttle before it could, you know. Uh, be released and um and then ultimately fire its uh inertial upper stage which uh i didn't realize that the, the right the ius is you know this upper stage to take you from leo that the shuttle could reach and then go and put you in you know uh, me, uh medium earth orbit or uh, or uh, geostationary or wherever you need mm -hmm. to go and or or beyond right for some of these you know interplanetary missions uh, i had no idea though that it was actually a two-stage solid so you had quite a few you had a very complicated staging system going on if you had a shuttle deploying something with the, with the IUS, uh, and so um and so this was not the first uh, IUS uh, used on a shuttle or sorry it was the first IUS used on a shuttle but not the first IUS ever used there was one that flew on a, a Titan 34D uh, before then a, few, a year or so uh, earlier. I feel like by this point in history there actually would have been many um, inertial upper stages but that was only the second one. There might have been I mean. Inertial upper stage, right, referring to a very specific <laughs> um, rocket. And so, yeah, that was the, the, only the second one that um, – only the second time an IUS uh, was used. There had been a lot of small, solid upper stages, you know, for all sorts of rockets going back, you know, probably 50s. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, or, or is there a distinction between that and, you know, like what we call a kick stage? Because I figure that's exactly, more or less yeah. – Right. So I, IUS is a specific – Launch vehicle, I guess, or specific upper okay. stage. Um, yeah, and it's 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 kind of iconic. It's it's whenever you see like I don't know, like I bet Chandra um, was deployed uh, using an IUS or used an IUS. Like it was something that launched a whole bunch of uh, satellites, and uh, I think uh, Magellan that went to Jupiter flew on a, had an, an inertial upper stage. And so it's kind of like when uh, right Ben, we were talking about or you're talking about um. How uh, terrain relative navigation, yeah. right? <laughs> whether or not that's a something specific or just a general right. uh, idea. Right. Uh, similarly, an inertial upper stage sounds like, you know, did they name this? Like, you know, if you had a rocket that was named kick stage, the rocket, you know what I mean? Like that would be um, yeah, confusing about this. But yeah, because I thought this whole time that, that that was just, you know, a type of a stage, not a specific stage you know but now right. i'm saying that yeah it's actually a specific one designed by boeing so on and so forth so yeah okay so um in addition to, so the tedris was deployed um it, it actually uh didn't go into the right orbit initially uh or rather it didn't reach uh its intended orbit um i think there was some issue with the ius uh but ultimately uh the tedris was able to use its propulsion uh its, its own propulsion system to get into the correct orbit and so i guess it just took a little longer before it could be online but um anyway so that that was kind of the primary uh uh, you know, uh, well, that was the, the, the primary payload for the mission, uh, for sure. And, um, and yet another first, uh, that, you know, this, uh, STS-6 had was, it was the first, uh, lightweight external tank used on a shuttle. And so there were, there's a, were, were a few generations of external tanks. Um, the lightweight tank, uh, uh, was used for a while. And then ultimately, I think the super lightweight <laughs> succeeded it. And I don't think they went to super duper, uh, 
lightweight external tank, but um, yeah. But all these things, you know, were really cool. You know, I mean, a maiden flight, the first Tedris, the first lightweight external tank. But I think the thing that really stood out, and especially since we talked about uh, STS-5 uh, previously as of this week in spaceflight history, is that STS-6, right, this week's, uh, or last week's uh, uh, <laughs> event, was um, the first shuttle EVA. And so this uh, took place on uh, uh, flight day three. Uh, it was a five-day flight overall. And um, just a bit of history, right? So there's only been, this is only the sixth shuttle mission. Uh, one, two, and three uh, didn't mess with EVAs at all. STS-4 uh, tested donning them, but not leaving the airlock and actually going outside or anything. And then um, STS-5, which again was previously an event, um, was the one where uh, Joe Allen and Bill Lenore were supposed to do the EVA but they wound up both having issues with their suits. I think one, uh, the fan on one was given to trouble and then ultimately, you know, went kaput. Um, and so I think they might have actually opened the hatch and poked their head outside. One of the, one of the astronauts was able to poke his head outside, and but that was essentially it. And so this was the first proper EVA uh, for a shuttle, as well as the first EVA in nine years since uh, Space Lab. Uh, as the first EVA, it also was the first... Uh, as the first shuttle EVA, it was also the first use of the uh, EMUs, the uh, uh, extravehicular mobility units, right? And so this is the the classic, quintessential, still used uh, space uh, suit that the uh, American astronauts uh, use, and and as well as well, I guess non-Russian astronauts use. And um, you know, so you know, just a little sense of this thing. Yeah, it's, it it weighs 125 kilograms or 275 pounds, um, and has you know 14 layers of material around you. And so, right, remember you you are experiencing weightlessness, but of course, all that mass has an inertia as you're kind of maneuvering around. And so that's uh, ultimately the idea um, was that after you know. Um, they did their pre-breathe, they wanted to test all sorts of, uh, essentially the ability to do construction type work and repairs and things like that in the orbiter, right? Because if, you know, you don't want, you know, to have some actual, uh, you know, mission critical EVA be the first time you test out these suits and actually go for it. So I, I mentioned, right, so we know they do, uh, uh, you have to do a pre-breathe, right? With, so you can kind of purge the nitrogen, uh, you know, bubbles from you or gas from your, your blood. So that way, you know, when you're getting the uh, pure oxygen environment in the suit, you're A-OK. -okay. Uh, one thing I didn't know or, and learned when I was uh, kind of looking at the EMUs uh, a bit more was that um, they actually depressurized and increased the uh, uh, partial, uh, the, the amount of uh, oxygen in the atmosphere for the whole cabin uh, prior to uh, a spacewalk, but only by a little bit. So that way the non, you know, spacewalkers would be totally fine. I think they cut it down from, uh, you know, uh, by 30% uh, uh, roughly, and then increase the uh, oxygen by some slight amount. And uh, given that this is, you know, the idea is to do, you know, construction type or, or basically test, you know, how do the suits move around? So, right, basically, you know, how is checking them out? Uh, how is maneuvering around the bay, climbing yourself, you know, from the front end of the shuttle where the airlock is, right? And remember, this is also uh, the uh, internal airlocks that are eating up a lot of the space on the mid-deck of the shuttle. This is before you had the external one. You know, the uh, so uh, Story, uh, uh, Musgrave, and Don Peterson, you know, they, they get suited, they go out there, they they basically work their way to the back end of the uh, shuttle. They uh, test the safety tethers that they had dangling around. They had some tools, so they were messing around with the tools to see kind of what works with them, what doesn't work with them. Uh, they had a winch in the back end of the shuttle to kind of simulate manually closing the uh payload bay doors. Um, they didn't want to actually do that, but they still wanted to see whether or not, you know, in an emergency, if this kind of mechanism would work. Uh, they had a little bit of trouble uh, rewinding it afterwards and 
uh, at one point, I think, asked Mission Control if they could cut the cable because, you know, there was no real risk or, of this, or at least, you know, so long as the payload bay doors didn't malfunction later. But um, essentially, uh, it all worked out for, uh, for, for the better. You know, it became, it got unstuck or whatever had happened, uh, the, the cabling, and they were able to, you know, just kind of do the simulation just fine. And so, I mean, it was kind of like they were role-playing back there, you know what I mean? But <laughs> Which is kind of, you know, what you're doing when you're, you know, doing serious work and testing it out. And, you know, and I mean, later shuttle EVAs, you know, decades later, would basically like, you know, extend a truss and then fold it back. You know what I mean? Like, like just basically, again, you know, role-playing for actually building a space station, you know, before you actually had to do any uh, EVAs on station. Um, and so anyway, uh, you know, uh, another thing that might be important was uh, what if your satellite, you know, tilt table gets jammed, right? I mentioned the, um, the TDRS, right, is, you know, it's, it's, it's on its side, like nestled into the bay. Uh, the payload bay, and then it has to get raised uh, to be deployed. And it could, once it was up to 45 degrees, they had a protractor that could measure this. Once it got up to 45 degrees, that would be uh, enough for it to clear uh, the orbiter A-OK. Uh, but they would target basically 58 degrees. But just imagine, right, if that got jammed uh, one way or another, you know, or I guess, you know, if it got jammed when you tried to return that tilt table that was, you know, changing the, you know, pivoting the the, the payload. And so they, they had, you know, they had to try that out. And so, you know, and it worked, you know, uh, all, basically a lot of stuff worked, uh, you know, and, and they, you know, made some changes. Uh, one thing they learned was that the helmet lights were really necessary for a lot of the work, um, that the payload bay uh, floodlights were inaccurate or inadequate for the job they were trying to do. They basically spent four hours and 17 minutes. They're supposed to be uh, uh, shorter, uh, I think only like maybe three hours or so, but there were some delays in, in getting out there. And so it ended up taking a whole, you know, 14 hours and 17 minutes uh, for the EVA. But but that was it. That was that was the uh, the first uh, shuttle EVA and, you know, one of many and including some kind of wild things that they did on shuttle, like retrieving, you know, rogue satellites and, you know, <laughs> uh, doing all sorts of cool stuff, taking, uh, you know, the... Uh, man mobility unit for a spin, <laughs> you know, all these, all this iconic stuff uh, started here. <laughs> so what's interesting about this is that um, the scenarios that, that they were, you know, practicing or I guess, you know, trying to train for, um, I never thought about having to lower the satellite tilt table and how if they can't do that right, then that means that they can't close the bay doors, right? Which means that they can't return. I, I don't know if the table's is that, what that, that big that it would still yeah, I was wondering, clearance. Mm. Yeah, so I was wondering why then would they need to do that? Because I because I'm assuming that that's the case. Because if not, then why would they need to lower the tilt table? Maybe you wouldn't want it getting unstuck during reentry, <laughs> and then suddenly you've got this. I suppose so. Thing yeah, going like rattling bang, around. You know, while yeah. you're coming in, you know, in this really you know intense reentry environment. I don't know. That's the only guess hmm. I have. Because because you're right, right? I mean, if like in a worst case scenario, would you be able to just leave it in the stuck position and you know? No big deal. You just return fine. So I still haven't actually said what the uh, the meaning of the clue was, and that uh, ultimately comes from uh, what you know. Story Musgrave, right? One of the two uh, uh, spacewalkers uh, uh, said uh, when he was thinking uh, of his time back in uh, the uh, you know neutral buoyancy pool, the what was called the Weightless Environmental Training Facility, or WETF, and that was in the 80s and 90s. That was the the the, the pool that they would train in. And so I just like to read a little. Uh, transcript i realized it's got the it's got the capcom it's got a uh, story and it also has the uh, public affairs officer so the transcript uh, goes uh, like this so capcom says how does that compare to the water tank story musgrave replies well there's no viscosity if you get it going you can keep it going there's a reach right there that i could make in the water tank but i can't make it here 
the PAO, Public Affairs Office, says, uh, uh, Musgrave now at the aft bulkhead evaluating the handholds on that rear wall of the spacecraft cargo bay, right? My comment, right, that they, you know, these are basically, this person is, you know, given the play-by-play, -play, essentially, right? And so Capcom next says, we've got a good shot of Mother Earth behind you there, Story. Uh, Story replies, uh, a little garbled. This is a little deeper pool than I've been used to working in. And so the PAO uh, uh, says Musgrave comparing the spacewalk to his earthly training in the water tank, saying it's a little deeper pool than he's used to working in. And I just thought that was like such a cool, like kind of poetic thing to say, you know, a little deeper pool. Yeah. That could be the title of, you know, his memoirs or something. Although he actually does have uh, his own uh, biography. But yeah, good. Question. that is pretty cool. And I think it's poetic because that's an understatement, um, and that's right. kind of what yeah. makes it work. Yeah, right. And Story Musker is like an absolute polymath, where you know he's got all sorts of degrees and credentials and different things. He's just mm -hmm. you know, he's just a genius kind of person, like in the truest, most uh, yeah, he's uncontroversial sense of the word. <laughs> yeah, he well, and he's also definitely a little bit eccentric, which I think also uh, helps bolster the whole polymath like genius persona. Is that he's kind of this guy who, and he, I mean, he can tell great stories. He's just kind of one of those people, you know. He's he he like he always has something like very interesting and crazy to say, uh, and he knows a lot. So that's like a deadly combination. So he is one of the more interesting astronauts I think that there has ever been. Oh, for sure. This is you know kind of at, you know we're at the uh, we're approaching the end of the mission, but I thought you know uh, just a couple cool little facts that didn't really fit in much uh, elsewhere, but um just that uh so Paul Waits at one point commented early on that the and I had no idea about this that the rudder on uh, the you know shuttle's uh, the orbiter's tail is evidently left parked to the left, and so he actually saw it and he was like uh oh did it get you know stuck at some point or something but that's kind of just the default position that they leave it at and so you know if, you know the commander is just kind of like you know surprised by that, then I feel like me being surprised isn't that uh, big a deal. Um, that at the time, this was the oldest uh, crew to fly any mission by average age. That uh, uh, Oh, and that, uh, thank you, Mike, in the chat for pointing out uh, that it had a phenomenal um, uh, crew photo before the mission. And so uh, we'll keep, we'll have that in the show notes. But essentially, to say that they're dressed up as cowboys doesn't quite do it justice. It, they're dressed up like uh, a 12-year-old uh, playing cowboy, uh, you know, uh, playing cowboys in like the yeah. 60s which, or 50s and 60s would dress up. <laughs> they got the the hats, these red bandanas, uh, the red suspenders, and uh, you know, uh, story is holding a bugle. If uh, my eyes see uh, things correctly, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, they're F troop. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah, what's, Look, you, what's you can see F the little troop? flag off the side. That is. F troops. That's an old, uh, old, uh, old, uh, yeah, sitcom. There we go. Um, oh boy. Okay, that's where I've heard of it. Yeah, I don't know anything about it, but I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never watched. I've just heard of it and knew it had something to do with the Wild West. Yeah. So the mission, uh, you know, it was a five-day mission. So uh, on April 9th, it landed at Edwards Air Force Base, one of the handful of missions to not uh, land at Canaveral. And uh, as far as I understand, uh, story was seated during uh, uh, re-entry and so um, you always yeah. got to check <laughs> yeah always got to yeah. check <laughs> he might get out of his seat thank you Dennis that, that was really good so next week is the 13th through the 19th of April and David do you have a clue for us alright yes I do so the clue for next week is in 2005 and the clue is bullseye or maybe like bullseye with a question mark so maybe like you know bullseye <laughs> Um, but either way, bullseye. That's your clue. That's that's the operative word there. It doesn't need to be a question mark, but you know. All right. Well, if if you think you can answer the the question, what is bullseye? Uh, shoot us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF 
and good luck, everybody. All right. So we have we have four upcoming space flight events for this week. So let's get on to those. And what's the first one, Ben? All right. So it's a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Mission 23 or Operational Mission 23. We can say as little as possible about these at this point. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. flying uh, on Wednesday, April 7th at 1634 hours UTC out of Slick 40. After that, on April 9th is a Soyuz with mission 64S, which is the 64th Soyuz mission to station. And that will be a crew mission, obviously. That mission will be bringing up uh, three people, two Russians, Oleg Novitsky, Pyotr Dubrov, and NASA flight engineer Mark T. Vandehei. And it will be lifting off from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan as usual. And the launch time is at 07 and 42 minutes GMT or UTC. So that'll be 3.42 in the morning on the East Coast. So probably not going to watch that if you're anywhere in the States a little bit early. I guess if you're in Australia, you can check that one out. All right. And that Soyuz docking coverage uh, will be on NASA TV. It starts at 6.15 a.m. on the 9th. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be watching this one. Um, the coverage starts at 6.15. Uh, the docking is scheduled at 7.07 a.m. And of course, that's Eastern time. And then they will be opening the hatch uh, at 9 a.m. Eastern time. The coverage for that will begin at 8.30. And, of course, they open the hatch and do the welcoming ceremony and uh, all, all that good stuff. And then finally, uh, same day on April 9th, Friday, uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern, NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter will prepare for takeoff. And so this is going to be presented on NASA TV. Um, as far as when takeoff is, uh, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if it's been announced, but this might be uh, something to go and check out and learn a little more about when this little uh, helicopter is going to go flying around on Mars. So. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Well, that means it's time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links or orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com alright so that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you